Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a counteroffensive underway in Ukraine and investigate the pessimistic prognostications from many military analysts who are suggesting the Ukrainian offensive is bogged down and that the Russians are winning by not losing. Joining us to assess what the strategic aims of the offensive are and how a limited Ukrainian victory might lead to a negotiated settlement is Aram Shabanian, the open source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Then we'll examine the cavalier disregard for the perceptions that Russian leaders have of our aims and activities and how the Secretary of State and others are so quick to dismiss Russian threats of using nuclear weapons when Putin himself said in 2018 that, quote, we have no need for a world without Russia. Joining us is Robert Cruz, a professor of history at Stanford University, where he teaches global history and politics, focusing on Afghanistan, Russia, Central Asia, South Asia, and Islam. He is the author of Afghan Modern, The History of a Global Nation, and For Prophet and Tsar, Islam and the Empire in Russia and Central Asia. His work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, and we will discuss his article at the Institute for New Global Politics, The Hydra of Hybrid War, Who Decides When Russia and the U.S. Are at War, and What Comes Next. And joining us now is Aram Shabanian, who is an open source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aram Shabanian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Aram. And what do you make of the chorus now in the media amongst military experts, etc., uh, and, and statements also from President Zelensky saying that the offense counteroffensive is going slower than they'd hoped. It's hard to know whether it's really going poorly or, on the other hand, a lot of supporters of Ukraine just have too high expectations. So wh- where do you come down on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that what what President Zelensky and his cabinet may hope for and what they may realistically expect are probably two different things, and that they might be hoping for something uh, more of a repeat repeat of last year's offensive in Kharkiv. And I think it's important to temper our expectations against something like that because uh, that was really a remarkable counteroffensive, especially in in uh, the guises of modern warfare. Um, when you think about the amount of time that the Russian engineering corps has had to, uh, build up their defenses in the Southern areas around Kherson, around Crimea, uh, in, in the Donbass area. Um, I mean, they've had in some areas eight years and other places a year, at least to build up the Russian engineering corps is still quite competent despite the relative incompetence of the rest of the Russian military. But what is important to note here, I think is that as much of a slugfest as this is and as much difficulty as the Ukrainians are having advancing over uh, these these heavily defended positions and any army, by the way, would struggle with that. Um, U.S. military officers I've spoken with have said that they would take with a fully equipped and trained U.S. military 
engagement, you know, unit of any size moving into an engagement of what we're seeing in southern Ukraine, they're expecting 25 percent casualties of with within U.S. forces. So the Ukrainians aren't seeing uh, wild casualties. They're seeing about what you'd expect in against the opposed force or against the defended uh, defended line. Um, but I do think it is important to, to keep in mind the condition of of their opponents wherein with the Russians we saw uh, you know, a military insurrection within the last two weeks um, against the leadership. And so when you compare that to what the Ukrainians are seeing, which is a, a competent force that's still advancing but not as quickly as we might hope for, the Russians are in much more dire straits. And so I think that that bears noting. Um, as, as pessimistic as some of the numbers may be, I think there is reason to be hopeful for Ukraine's um, battlefield perspective. So when you mentioned that the Russian engineer corps is competent and that they've had plenty of time to prepare defenses, my understanding is that the mines get cleared by the Ukrainians and sometimes they suffer casualties, of course, but then the Russians are able to fire cluster mines through artillery that then lay down in front of wherever the Ukrainians are moving and even these small anti-personnel mines take the legs off Ukrainians and therefore slow them down. So apparently, if they're suffering a lot of casualties, a lot of them are probably wounded from mines. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there was a video that came out a couple of days ago of a Ukrainian soldier jumping off the back of an APC and landing on a mine and blowing his leg off. Um, and I mean, he survived. He told the tale later, but he still is going to live the rest of his life without part of that limb, right? And so that's what's important to note is that a lot of these casualties are probably quite severe that we're seeing. Um, I, I tend to believe that especially in a war like what Ukraine is seeing, uh, people are probably not going to report themselves in as injured unless they're injured enough to not stand on the battlefield with their comrades and, and continue to fight. Um, I think most of them are in it together. And so I think if they're being reported as injured, it's probably a missing limb or something of that nature. Um, and so the injuries are, are quite quite grievous and, and need to be taken into account. Ukraine is going to need a lot of post-war support dealing with this at best um, and helping folks who have lost limbs and, and suffered from traumas of various kinds. So what's your prognosis then? I mean, if the going is tough and they're suffering casualties, the Ukrainians can't afford casualties like the Russians can based upon the population ratio of, what, three to one. But uh, and also it doesn't seem like the Russian military command and Putin himself care too much about how many casualties they suffer. But uh, clearly Zelensky is deeply concerned. And these guys that are slugging it out now and taking casualties on the Ukrainian side, they're, you know, school teachers and accountants, aren't they? A lot of them. I mean, maybe the professional military is being held back. But my understanding is that the guys on the front line um, just conscripts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a broad cut of society. Um, and, I mean, there's conscripts on the front line. There's also, and when you, when you say conscripts too, some people are, are conscripts in the sense, uh, in the traditional sense where they're more poorly trained, you know, uh, just kind of uh, dude with a rifle. Um, but some of these people who were conscripted were also conscripted because of their professional skills and because of their knowledge and what, what they do in in the civilian world. And I mean, the, the equivalent that you could see of that would be if the U.S. were in a very large war, um, many commercial airline pilots would be taken from from their jobs and put into service as transport pilots. 
um, because of their service in the Air National Guard. So uh, conscript is is a broader term, of course, within the Ukrainian context. Right. But there is an obvious difference in morale, right? You mentioned that the coup attempt uh, by Prigozhin or what Putin calls a mutiny, I don't know the extent to which the Russian troops on the front lines know about what happened because obviously there's censorship and Russian um, information is so tightly controlled. But what's your reading on morale on the Russian side? On the Russian side, I think morale is quite poor, um, with the exception of certain units. I think their morale is is uh, pretty abysmal. And I think the Ukrainians, their morale is, is decent, but is showing signs of, of shakiness. And I think that what's important now for the Ukrainian side is to try to consolidate their battlefield gains as much as possible and uh, make as much of a threatening move onto, onto Russian-occupied territory as possible with the eye toward, I think, surrounding Crimea without trying to attack it yet, and then launching negotiations with the Russians. And, and that's what's been talked about in the media a little bit. It's that the Ukrainians are trying to gain a bunch of territory and then open negotiations with the Russians. Because I think realistically what you've talked about, or what you've mentioned is entirely true, that the casualties, as motivated as, as Ukrainian society may be to continue this fight, the casualties are untenable at a certain point. And I don't think that's untenable yet, but it will reach that point. Well, you have to look at the whole country, don't you, in the in the sense of how much they've suffered from this war, with the cities destroyed and infrastructure destroyed. What I don't know what the percentage of the, of the population has left the country, but it's about what a quarter of people have left. So at least, yeah, and I mean that would line up with the numbers that we saw with the war in Syria too. You know, I mean. Uh, about a quarter to a half, about a quarter people, a quarter people would leave the country, and then another quarter to a half are displaced within the country. Those are the metrics that we see with these modern wars, and it's it's frightening to see how quickly it happens. Um, but with the amount of damage that's been done to Ukraine and the amount of population movement that we've seen, I mean, the whole country is is reeling from this. And to pretend like it's business as usual is is you know putting on a brave face for for the Ukrainian people at least. But for the rest of us, we need to to genuinely consider not only how we're going to continue to support Ukraine in the immediate sense, but how we're going to support them in the future with rebuilding because kicking the can down the road, if we, if we leave Ukraine in ruins uh, spiritually or physically, uh, it will be to our detriment, I believe. So we have clearly been slow in delivering stuff that they've asked for. They wanted tanks, and we dithered away, and no, 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 you can't have them. And eventually they come months and months later. And the same with the F-16s and just about every weapon system that they've asked for. There's been this delay where we set these red lines, you know you can't have it, and then after a while we undo our own red lines. But in the meantime, time is lost. So... If we had provided what the Ukrainians have been asking for months or even a year ago, wouldn't it be a very different situation on the battlefield today? I think there are some individual weapons that, that yes, that is the case for. But I think that with a lot of the more advanced weapons systems, um, even something like a tank that the Ukrainians are capable of building and maintaining and operating themselves, a Leopard tank is very different than a Soviet tank. You know, I mean, down to the labels are printed in the in the wrong language for Ukrainian troops. And so it takes them a while to stand up. 
these capabilities, especially with more advanced weapon systems, um, I would expect it to take at least half a year to a year to get someone really proficient on like a new model of tank. And so that's that lines up roughly with what we've seen about six months with tanks being brought into Poland and Romania and whatnot for training um, before we've seen them on the battlefield. And I think what's important, again, to remember, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier with tempering expectations, is to temper expectations with regards to these weapons. These are not wonder weapons. The Leopard tank is not invulnerable. In fact, any battlefield, any armored vehicle on the battlefield today is vulnerable to an anti-tank guided missile. Like, it can get through the armor of just about anything and knock it out, if not destroy it. The flip side of that, though, is these Leopards and these Bradleys that we've seen knocked out of service, most of the time the crew has survived either unscathed or virtually unscathed. And that is not the case with Soviet weapons. Um, the Bradley infantry fighting vehicle in particular took a lot of flack back in the day for uh, being kind of a boondoggle. But what we've seen is that it's attained almost a cult status in Ukraine where uh, Ukrainian crew members come back alive all the time from the Bradley and they love it. And that's why the U.S. has been sending so many, and that's why the Ukrainians have been requesting so many. So I think those are all factors to keep in mind with regards to the uh, Western-supplied weapons. But the Bradleys and the, and the Leopard tanks are very vulnerable to attack helicopters. That's when they lost a bunch of them, right? And you're saying that they we've seen the aerial pictures of the damaged and destroyed tanks, but the guys got out alive. That's Yes, and so the helicopters attacked, but... but those vehicles were mostly disabled by mines before they were attacked by anything else. Uh, the ones in the, and 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 it's funny because you mentioned that and I know exactly which image you're talking about because it happens to be the only image or video of a large number of leopards and Bradleys that have been knocked out together and the Russians have posted it again and again and again for the last several weeks, which leads me to believe that they're not claiming as many Western vehicles as as we may believe. I mean, there's definitely some that are being destroyed and, and knocked out, but a lot of them are being towed off the battlefield and repaired. The crews are surviving. And ultimately, what Western vehicles, especially something like the Abrams tank, which is going to take a while to see on the battlefield, what they mean for the Ukrainians is the same thing that American tanks going to Israel in 1973 meant, which is a lasting uh, commitment to, to the side that the U.S. is, is allied with. That is to say, for every Ukrainian tank that gets knocked out, there's another American tank or German tank or British tank, whatever it may be, waiting to roll onto the battlefield. And if the Russians are starting to dig into their inventories of T-55 tanks, which were obsolete in the early 60s, while the Ukrainians are starting to field Leopard 2s, uh, it doesn't bode well for the Russian side. Even though the Ukrainians are taking casualties, their casualties are being replaced by oftentimes better equipped soldiers. Um which is not, again, the case for the Russians. Right, but you were saying earlier um, it takes six months to train up a Leopard tank crew, and most of these weapon systems also need to, need to be adapted and trained, and the users need to be trained. Doesn't that support the point that I was making earlier? Is it why didn't we send them six months ago? I mean, yeah, you're, you're definitely not wrong. There could have been uh, weapons sent earlier, and I think that that's something that's going to be important to remember for the historical record is that um, as much support as there is now for, for Ukraine, in the beginning there was very little, if any. Most of the West expected Kyiv to fall in, in – I mean there was that famous moment where the U.S. offered Zelensky a helicopter ride out and he said, I need ammunition, not a ride. 
And I mean, that's been the recurring theme in this war is they need ammunition, not a ride. You know, they don't need excuses. They need weapons. And so, um, yeah, I think that a lot of these weapons could be absolutely getting delivered in larger numbers. They could be getting delivered more quickly and the training could be ramped up. Um, I think that the West is nervous about provoking the Russians, but I think that also some of that nervousness comes down to restraining Zelensky. The West doesn't want to give Zelensky all the weapons that he might need because I think they're afraid that he might take the fight to Russia in a way that they can't control. And so uh, Western leaders have spoken of leverage often in this war. If we give the Ukrainians all these weapons, we lose leverage. And I don't think they meant leverage over the Russians. I think they meant leverage over Ukraine's war plans. Right. But if that is the case, and it certainly appears to be the case, are there anybody on our side that's sort of playing a double game, talking a good game? We accuse the Germans of doing that for the longest time, talking a good game and then never delivering the stuff. Finally, and when the U.S. sent the uh, Abrams tanks, they finally agreed to send the Leopard tanks. So is there any indication that there's a political game on our side, that we we don't want them to go too far? Or is there some kind of deal behind the scenes where we accept that red line for the Russians is anybody invading their territory in exchange for the Russians, not pushing the envelope and going after NATO territory. Is there anything going on in the back back channels that you can see here? Because it does feel a little bit like, as the right wing in this country accused us during the Vietnam War, that we're fighting the war with one hand tied behind our backs. Are we doing the same in terms of restraining Ukraine via restrictions on weapons? Well, I mean, that's the big question, right, is, I mean, we are definitely restricting restricting which weapons go to Ukraine, and we are effectively fighting with one hand tied behind our backs, but the question is, why are we doing that? Is it to, right, is it to win favor with the Russians, and like you said, keep, keep kind of like this gentleman's agreement of, we respect your territory, you respect ours, or is it perhaps uh, to also, with that in mind, control whether or not the Ukrainians attack Russian territory, right? It's to, it's to, I, I believe, yeah, it is to rein in the Ukrainian, um, potential Ukrainian actions with regards to Russian territory. Now, whether or not the Ukrainians would actually do that is another question, but that brings up yet a third question, which is, do the Russians regard Crimea as beyond that red line? Do they regard that as, as Russian as Rostov or Moscow? Uh, that remains to be seen. And um, I think that might be a very contentious issue in the next few months. But what you were saying earlier um, sort of makes sense if the objective on the part of the Ukrainians is to take the territory to the north of Crimea and then bargain Crimea with the Russians, let them have it. I mean, that was the sort of initial red line, wasn't it, that, that force Putin to send in his little green men where they see that Crimea as being vital to the uh, Black Sea fleet and therefore the Russian military insisted on taking it back. Isn't that the history there in terms of the military objective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that that's why it's going to be such a contentious issue, right? Because it's it's a territory that the Russians very much regard as theirs, but it's also sort of the casus belli of the wider conflict. And so 
uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a very um, close issue, a very important issue to watch. And I think that uh, depending on how well the Ukrainians do in the next couple months is going to to dictate how willing they are to negotiate away the peninsula. Um, if we see them making some big battlefield gains or even moderate battlefield gains, they might be less likely to negotiate it away. If things continue to go more difficult for them or, or more slowly for them, maybe they will. Um, and I, I imagine there's a lot of conversations going on behind closed doors about this right now between the Ukrainians and their Western allies and then among the Ukrainians themselves. Well, General Milley has said it's going to be a long and bloody slog, didn't he, recently? Yeah, and I think that that's just a, a, a realistic appraisal of the war, is that even if the Ukrainians managed to take a bunch of territory back, even if they took Donetsk City back, uh, there's still a lot of fighting to be done, and these are areas that the Russians have been preparing since 2014. But according to the scenario that you mentioned, Aram, is that they don't really need the Donbass so much as they need to go down to the border of what used to be the border to Crimea, right? That would be their leverage in bargaining Crimea because before the war, they had leverage over Russian-occupied Crimea because of the water supply, didn't they? Yeah, um, and so the, the problem is in order to to advance to the border of Crimea, as we've discussed here, um, especially with with the understanding of the blown dam and Novokakovka in mind, um, a lot of the Kherson region has been flooded, but a lot of it's also very heavily mined and heavily defended. And so the most likely way that the Ukrainians will uh, cut Crimea off from Russian mainland access through the rest of their occupied territories is to cut a path through uh, like the Zaporizhia region uh, near the city of Azov, uh, perhaps take the city of Melitopol back and uh, cut off Crimea in that way. So wrapping around the Russian occupation as opposed to coming straight through the occupied territory. Uh, it's a little more roundabout of a route, but it makes the most sense, at least in terms of going around defenses. Well, Aram Shabanian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on. And again, I'll be speaking with Aram Shabanian, who's an open source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in nonproliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the cavalier disregard for the perceptions that Russian leaders have of our aims and activities and how the Secretary of State and others are so quick to dismiss Russian threats of using nuclear weapons when Putin himself said in 2008 that, quote, we have no need for a world without Russia. Two great ships will pull back to their ports Depleted of everything that shoots flames and reports And in the morning the shells will wash up on the shore And the mighty of earth will have no other recourse But to shiver and shake and make sure
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Cruz, a professor of history at Stanford University, where he teaches global history and politics, focusing on Afghanistan, Russia, Central Asia, South Asia, and Islam. He's the author of Afghan Modern, the History of, of a Global Nation, For Profit and Tsar, Islam and Empire in Russia, and Central Asia. And he has an article at the Institute for New Global Politics, The Hydra of Hybrid War, Who Decides When Russia and the U.S. Are at War, and What Comes Next. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Cruz. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your article cites something that also caught my attention and certainly has caught your attention, that in 2018, Vladimir Putin said that we have no need for a world without Russia. So we know that Putin feels that he's being encroached upon at a very personal level. I mean, he's a small man with a massive chip on his shoulder who feels he's been slighted. And, and I guess one of the insults uh, that came from Barack Obama when he was president, uh, he referred to Russia as a regional power. So one of the problems we've had throughout the Cold War is that there were so many nuclear near misses. There's still a lot of these are classified, but a lot of them came about because we see ourselves as virtuous and we don't really think about the perceptions of others, how they see us. So when, for example, during Ronald Reagan, Reagan said that the Soviet Union would end up on the ash heap of history, the geriatrics in the Kremlin took that quite personally. And when Caspar Weinberger said we have a policy of nuclear decapitation, they took that extremely personally. And in 1983, in, late in 1983, they almost initiated a nuclear war because they thought we were about to strike them. And they thought, well, we'll beat them to the nuclear draw because it'll be bad, but uh, it'll be other, otherwise worse if we don't preempt their preemption. They honestly thought that we were about to attack them. So I know it's a somewhat long-winded introduction, but... Is it still the case now that we are perceiving ourselves as being virtuous in the war in Ukraine and not understanding how the other side sees itself and sees what we're doing? Yes, I, I think you've nicely crystallized um, some concerns we should all, I think, come to terms with. And for me, fundamentally, the, the dilemma is, is this, really. Um, Washington thinks it is you know, aiding Ukraine in a war of... Um, survival for Ukrainians, and that's very true. I think, you know, all right-minded people can agree with, you know, the, the validity of Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. And obviously this is a, a horrific war that, that Putin has unleashed on Ukrainian civilians. And all that is, a, is an enormous tragedy, of course. But what concerns me is that um, most Americans imagine that the, the war is far away and that, you know, we're not really a party to it. But if one reads the official pronouncements of Russian officials, if one reads the Russian media, if one pays attention to a Russian academic and and cultural and, if you like, security life, um, all those voices are telling a very different story. And that is that Russia is at war with the United States uh, and NATO, but primarily you know, they, they see NATO as a kind of extension of American power. So the, the mismatch here really is in the way we're conceiving of the conflict in Ukraine. On the one hand, um, at most, it's an indirect war. Uh, you know, it's support for this foreign power. Um, and on the other hand, it's it's direct 
uh, you know, open warfare, um, with the acknowledgement in recent weeks or the or the concern in recent weeks in Russia that the United States doesn't really care enough anymore about nuclear parity. This idea that your listeners will know from the Cold War of mutually assured destruction. I think a lot of people, you know, in strategic circles and security circles in, in Moscow have become to worry that, you know, the United States has lost uh, any kind of fear. And that with the extension of nuclear defense infrastructure, including, including uh, radar, including uh, defense missile systems into Eastern Europe, somehow, you know, U.S. and Russia are no longer on an equal footing in terms of nuclear weapons capacities. So all that and the 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 sense that these experts have in Russia that, um, you know, not only do we not care, but we don't really take seriously the idea that the Russians might use nuclear weapons. And so all that, you know, I think is alarming. I think it's it's interesting to watch the the statements of Secretary Anthony Blinken um, and to have him continually dismiss the possibility of escalation in Russia. And then you have experts like my colleague at Stanford, Michael McFall, who have really gone on uh, almost daily about how Putin is always bluffing. He never really escalates. And I think there's a, a massive distance between you know, that kind of rhetoric and, and Putin's actual track record. Well, you following the, some of the voices from the Kremlin and uh, Karaganov in particular is an influential voice, and he's more or less suggesting that uh, they should uh, fire off a tactical nuke, isn't he? I mean, uh, he's not alone, by the way. I mean, Putin himself has put his uh, nuclear forces on alert on a couple of occasions. But walk us through some of the statements that are coming from the inner circle and how sort of it's being echoed in mainstream media, which is all controlled by the government. I would yeah. take it seriously if a whole bunch of voices on Fox News, and if Fox News was the only television channel we had, I'd take it very seriously if a whole bunch of right-wing generals were, taught, were urging us to nuke Russia. Well, I agree. I agree. I think that's um, it's a very serious proposition. The challenge for, for us here looking at it from beyond the Kremlin is that, you know, as long as we're outside of the walls, uh, no one really knows what is happening in those closed spaces. And I, I mistrust anyone who claims to know what Putin is thinking at any moment. I mean, we have his historical record, we have his statements, um, but I can't say with any seriousness, you know, what Putin is thinking about nuclear weapons. He did make a statement last week, which I thought was interesting, which I think was in response to this Karganov essay, which I mentioned in this um, in this piece, which, as you noted, advocated uh, a new strategy, which is first use of a tackled nuclear weapon. He's vague about its geography, maybe Ukraine. He did mention a city in Poland. So that, I think, got the attention of a lot of Russian experts and what you know, we can kind of dismiss this as being hyperbole and being something that, you know, you would, I think your analogy to Fox News is, is completely appropriate. Something that is kind of red meat for the audience, people who are frustrated at the, the war not going, you know, as Putin promised, uh, kind of saber rattling, putting the West in its place. All, all that, of course, is essential to uh, Russian politics at the moment. But what struck me about this as being different is that a number of serious Russian scholars uh, who hit, are quite sober and, and level-headed and not terribly nationalistic, um, saw this statement as being different because it, it comes from this figure, Sergei Karaganov, who is historically close to the Kremlin. Uh, they don't know exactly the address uh, of this article. Was it written to the West to you know attempt to kind of um, push back against 
a growing um, commitment to arming Ukraine and so on with one more sophisticated weapons, with S-16s, with potentially uh, cluster munitions and long-range weapons. You know, was Karaganov sending a signal to, to the Biden White House to deter that, um, or was he speaking to Putin? And that, I think, remains an open question. But a third variant is that, you know, with all this rhetoric coming from Karaganov, coming from people in parliament in Russia, coming from other quarters, um, that in a sense, it may become, this discussion may become so normalized uh, that it may give them false confidence that this is something that actually is palatable. Putin himself addressed this and said, you know, the only people to actually do this in human history are the Americans. So he had a very clever way of saying, yes, we have these weapons. Yes, we are putting uh, a new tactical installation in Belarus, which strategically, I think, is important because it puts things a little bit closer to the Baltic states and to Poland. And so that, I think, is quite serious. That's a, a new step. Um, so, you know, we don't know what Putin is thinking about this. Uh, on the one hand, in this most recent statement, when he was asked point blank, you know, are you thinking about using nuclear weapons here? He said, you know, we don't need to because the Ukrainian counteroffensive is failing. So we don't need to, but we'll use it if we have to. And he repeated the conditions which are part of Russian nuclear doctrine, which I think are, everyone should know about, I think, at this moment in 2023. And it's a, a brief formula, but essentially the points are, you know, if Russian territory is threatened, and if Russian sovereignty is threatened, Russian independence is threatened, if the Russian state is threatened, then we will use nuclear weapons. And if you're paying attention, I think that what's alarming about that is that those are all quite vague formulations to really, you know, have the future of humanity hinge upon them, uh, especially when Russia has annexed, you know, illegally to be sure, contrary to national law, but nonetheless, they've annexed some four territories in Ukraine, and they now treat them and regard them as Russian territory. So will, say, a Ukrainian counteroffensive that is aimed at reclaiming Crimea mean now that this is a red line that empowers the Kremlin to launch a nuclear weapon based upon that nuclear doctrine? And that, I think, is just a conversation in writing this essay. I, I wanted the American public and really the global public to think about, really, what it, what's the stake here? What are the risks? And it, the, the goal is not to undermine uh, you know, a Ukrainian uh, project of trying to reestablish independence and, and defend themselves. But it's a way to think about what what's at stake in the war, and really, I think, to prompt alternative thinking about really the urgency of a, of a peace plan, of, of diplomacy, of some alternative to what I think is really a, a potential moment of nuclear crisis. Let's take a brief station break. We'll be back in a moment, continuing the conversation with Robert Cruz.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and we're continuing the conversation with Robert Cruz, a professor of history at Stanford University where he teaches global history and politics focusing on Afghanistan, Russia, Central Asia, South Asia and Islam. And he has an article at the Institute for New Global Politics, The Hydra of Hydra War, Who Decides When Russia and the US Are at War and What Comes Next. So in terms of Putin's mindset, then, I mean, just recently uh, after the, um, the mutiny, as he called it, from Prigozhin, state media played a pre-recording of a five-minute statement of his in which he, he referred to Kiev and the West as being Nazis. Neon, he actually referred to the neo-Nazis in Kiev and in the West. How do you deal with that mindset? I know it goes back to his KGB days of the main enemy, Glavny Protivnik, the idea that the United States is the main enemy. And he does seem to harbor that idea. And, of course, it didn't help that we were dancing in the end zone at the end of the Cold War. And having spent trillions on so-called victory in the Cold War, we spent chump change on, on trying to transition Russia, and that clearly failed. And now Putin has taken the country back into a kind of autocratic czarist regime. So in terms of how do you proceed with a peace plan, is there any way to influence Putin, do you think, into accepting reality? I mean, he has his reality, and much of it, frankly, is is justified. I mean, if China had moved bases into Mexico, I think we'd be hysterical. So what's your sense then, Robert, of how we can move forward without selling out the Ukrainians who are being attacked by Russia and having their country literally murdered before our eyes along with civilians and what 700,000 kids now have been stolen by the Russians to be re-educated. So the whole thing is is incredibly hideous what they're doing. But on the other hand, we can't blunder into a nuclear war because we consider ourselves virtuous. And that's what I was talking about earlier, just to, to go back to the Able Archer of 1983. We almost had a nuclear war then because we weren't understanding the perceptions of the other side. So there are two stages here. You've got to understand the thinking on the other side and stage two, then you've got to deal with it and come to an agreement, right? That's right. I think that's the, the challenge of diplomacy. Um understanding how the other side sees the conflict, understanding the, their language, their categories, which, as I noted at the beginning, are, are totally um, absent from, I think, our public debate here in the United States. I think, you know, your way of thinking about this, um, what you just kind of laid out, thinking back to the late Cold War and, and its aftermath, I think, are periods of history that are well worth reviewing and understanding how what was once a moment of, of Russian integration into Europe fell apart over time, um, fell apart in, in steps, but quite precipitously, primarily due not just to NATO expansion, which we talk about in the United States a lot in debate, but but also about American, America's place in the world. Uh, Moscow watched very closely what the U.S. and NATO did in Afghanistan, and then in Iraq, and then in Syria, and Libya, and across Africa, and so on. So this conversation coming from Moscow is not really just about NATO. I mean, that's its geography. But really, it's about global power and this concept of, of hybrid warfare, which I think I've been surprised to, to see that highlighted so much recently in recent talk about 
potential uses of, of nuclear weapons and so on in, in Russia is that there's this conception of warfare, which ironically an American uh, ex-Marine kind of devised called hybrid warfare, which basically was trying to understand what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and I think quite alarmingly, it, it expanded what we might call war by shifting from just conventional battlefield you know, chess pieces to thinking about things like electoral interference, prompting dissidents to you know, incite rebellions within countries, um, cyber warfare, a whole range of activities which I think we don't think about conventionally as warfare, but which we might understand as politics. I think to that lens, the Kremlin now sees all kinds of American activities, uh, things like NGOs. I mean, the reason they, you know, the, the Russia and most former Soviet states have shut down international NGOs is they see them as a kind of Trojan horse toward regime change. And I think what frustrates me, you know, in academia and the think tank world is that there's a disconnect between how these politicians in Russia truly see these institutions, often our own work in universities and think tanks, as laying the groundwork for uh, regime change because, you know, they take place under the heading of democracy promotion, right? And to someone like Michael McFaul, that looks quite innocent and and noble-minded. And it may be, you know, in, in a certain abstract sense, but one also has to recognize that we talk openly about you know, destroying Russia, destroying Putin. And I think if you look at a lot of the, the rhetoric around think tanks and opinion writing in the United States in the last year, you know, there are lots of people who've gained a lot of clout talking about how not only must Russia be defeated militarily, it must be destroyed. Uh, the Russian Federation must be, you know, decolonized and taken apart. And so I think that, that rhetoric is, is taken quite seriously by the other side. And really, I think, again, I think we need to zoom out and think about a, a global geography, not just look at Russia, vis-a-vis, you know, the history of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and Eastern Europe and NATO, but also look at the ruins of, you know, Afghanistan, of Iraq and Syria. And really, that is the geography that that the Kremlin thinks about as well. And they see the United States as this, you know, kind of monstrous entity that is, um, you know, causing destruction across the planet. And so I think, yes, NATO expansion is one kind of factor, but the regime change element is something that, that I think has long kept Putin awake at night. And that's why Ukraine is so central, because of its not just this geography, but you know, they see the you know, first the Orange Revolution in 2004, uh, a whole row of pattern of American-led interventions, which again, which were couched in the U.S. as being back in civil society and so on, but were interpreted by many politicians in those countries and then Russia as really schemes to put people in power who were friendly to the United States. Um, so I think we have to to take really under review the last 20 or 30 years of American policy and, and try to see it through others' eyes, not, not just Putin's eyes. And that's not to say that, you know, one has to adopt all this rhetoric. I mean, some of it is, of course, um, aimed at a particular audience in Russia, which we don't have to take seriously. But there are certain elements that are, are not limited to Russia. And that's why I think the, the reaction of, of many African countries, many Latin American countries, for example, Brazil and Mexico, in response to the Ukraine war is that, you know, they have a way of putting this all in their own geography of the Cold War and of American intervention. And so they have not rushed to, you know, take Ukraine's side and because they see, you know, a, a deeper history at play here. So I think part of the challenge uh, of us in 2023 uh, in, in thinking about alternative policies and ways of engaging with Putin, the first step, of course, is to, to see it through different frameworks. Um, but also, I think, you know, for everyone's benefit, I think having an end to, you know, NATO expansion, declaring, you know, Ukraine a, a demilitarized space is something that I think is worth considering. That is one of Putin's talking points, but it is something that um, could be helpful for everyone. Uh, the United States has long, I think, 
harmed Ukrainians and Russians and their neighbors by leaving the door open for NATO expansion. Uh, NATO expansion to Ukraine will only be a tripwire for you know, a third world war. And to this day, I mean, next month, there are actually in two weeks, I think they're, they're meeting in Europe to discuss uh, NATO expansion once again. And that I think is, you know, it's a constant antagonism that, that Washington has, has pursued. And I think finally, uh, if you look at Putin's statements, I mean, he's, he's declared that Russia will take no more, right? And we don't want a world without Russia anymore is you know, one of his uh, famous statements that alarmed some of the nuclear policy experts. So I think all that will re require self-reflection and really changing American policies, changing how we think about American power. And you know, that need not mean stranding Ukrainians. Uh, I think you know, standing up for Ukrainian defense is, is quite reasonable and, and, and worthy. But I think the way to help Ukrainians today in 2023 is to uh, seek peace. Uh, unfortunately, the, the counteroffensive it, it does appear to be stalled, and you know, the Ukrainian forces are taking massive casualties, and that, that's quite alarming. And I, I don't see a, a military solution to this conflict, and that leaves us with you know several bad choices. These are, none of these are, are good choices, but I think um, taking Russia's security needs seriously uh, is the first step, and reassessing um, America's place in the world is a, a fundamental part of that. So let's reassess America's place in the world in the sense that recent history, I think, is one of the reasons why the global south, you mentioned Brazil and right next door Mexico, they don't support the U.S. position over, they don't support Ukraine, right. um, and they largely support Russia or, or they're on the fence, right. uh, South Africa included, most of the BRICs, in fact. How much do you think, uh, Robert Cruz, that's a result of the disastrous neocon era under George W. Bush, the invasion of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Do you think that was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the notion that America was an imperialist power? I think that's pivotal. I think you know, you could, Brazilians and Mexicans and others could, could say uh, you know, much more about this. I think the various layers of history, there is, of course, a distinctive U.S.-Mexico relationship, you know, which goes back for generations, which has its own uh, texture, of course. But I do think, yes, the the, the post-2001, post-9-11 era, uh, you're either with us or against us, you know, uh, turned many countries, you know, against the United States, in fact. And I think that actually laid a, you know, kind of um, endpoint to the U.S.-Russia uh, possibility of some kind of alternative relationship. And then again, thinking about NATO, just the the, the constant sense of, um, of betrayal of U.S. diplomats saying one thing to Moscow and then another to Warsaw and Prague and, and so on. So I think the, the, um, the kind of hubris of that long post-Cold War moment really lies at the heart of this. And, and to be sure, there are specific layers of history which also come into play. I mean, Putin and his vision of Russian nationalism of course, imagines that Russia is not just a great power, but it's a, a great power that draws upon an imperial history in which you know, what we now know as Ukraine was subordinated to Russian provincial administration from Petersburg. So there's that layer, too. But I think that's I think what what we should all think about is, you know, if if the root of this conflict were just Russian imperialism, you know, why did Putin invade in 2022? Um, you know, why did he, after two decades in power, suddenly move on Ukraine? I think, you know, they're more proximate 
routes to the to the more proximate factors which account for that. So of course each each country has its own relationship with the United States, its own history, which I think affects you know how Brazilians and South Africans you know, see Washington. But in Russia's case, you know, I think it's important to to think about the Russian Empire and its and its vestiges and the imperial consciousness of of Russian nationalism, to be sure. But we also have to be honest about watching what United States and, and often in league with Britain, often in league with France and so on, other NATO powers, you know, what they watched. I mean, if if, if one had the privilege of, of being in Russia as I did during, say, you know, Fallujah um, or, you know, the, the war in Libya, I mean, this was all something that was you know closely followed by a Russian public and they saw death and destruction and, and devastation. And I think, um, you know, that gave them pause in, in thinking about, you know, is this the kind of world we want to live in? where Americans can run roughshod across the planet, wreaking havoc, um, really, and and determining essentially how others will live. And of course there is, you know, that, so that's why there's such a contradiction between, you know, those who, who see Putin as, you know, an anti-imperialist, uh, of course he's also an imperialist, but but the, the rhetoric of, of seeing the United States as an imperial power it's quite powerful and it, and it's quite convincing to lots of people. I know most Americans don't accept that view and it, it can, of course, appear in very crude formulations. But I think we really have to reflect upon the pattern of American military intervention across the planet in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years to understand how the rest of the world sees us. So just in the last few minutes, obviously, the it's not helpful when Senator Lindsey Graham goes to Kiev and uh, just recently said that uh, American aid that's led to Russians dying was, quote, the best money we've ever spent. Right. Um, what's your sense then of whether or not the Chinese could play a role here in terms of trying to stop the bloodletting and begin the peace process? What's your sense of uh, whether the, the Chinese could bring the Russians to the table and the U.S. could bring Ukraine to the table? I think that that's an avenue that is worth pursuing. Uh, unfortunately, I think many commentators, many observers in, in academia and in, and in the, the think tank policy world have brought China to this as another power to be intimidated um, by the show of American arms. Um, of course, Taiwan is is often compared to Ukraine. And the argument, of course, is that you know if if NATO can push Russia out of Ukraine, it will deter China from moving on Taiwan. And so that that it's a very kind of alarming, you know, domino theory mode of thinking, which I think concerns me and, and conflates different regional issues. But I think already, you know, Chinese diplomats have, have visited Kiev and Moscow, and as I understand, Beijing has proposed you know a plan um, to get both sides to the table. I think that's actually, you know, it, it's we we're increasingly, you know, living in a, a post-American global world, a multipolar world, and so I think if China can be brought to bear in this, I think it'd be very welcome. Unfortunately, I don't think that's something that that Americans want to see right now, and I'm not sure anyone in Brussels is so keen on that either. But I think that is an option to consider, and you know, you, you noted the the high rates of casualties among Ukrainians, and yeah. We've seen this in, in other proxy wars, this idea of, you know, fighting to the last Afghan or fighting to the last Vietnamese soldier or fighting to the last Ukrainian. And you know, my fear is that there's a such a great disconnect between you know, an American sense of what we're investing in Ukraine 
actually, who's paying the cost? I mean, actually, it's, it's Ukrainian soldiers and civilians who are paying the cost. And I'd like to have a, a broader conversation about really what's at stake there. You know, what do we gain by fighting to the last Ukrainian? Um, is this really the path to Ukrainian freedom, sovereignty, and, and self-defense? And I think at this moment, at this crucial moment, I think the path is to you know allow the Chinese to try bring in other neutral powers, uh, perhaps in Latin America. Uh, you know, there was recently a, an Af- African delegation. I think all these things are are worth doing, but I think unless the United States is on board and can really assert pressure on on Kiev to to make unfortunately certain compromises, I think this is the this is the very un- unpleasant part of the war. Is that I, you know it, the, the prospect of regaining Ukraine's territory as of 1991, I think, appears more and more remote. And that's a, a very bitter pill for Ukrainians to consider. But I think, given the alternatives, uh, that's something to to be discussed. So just in closing, though, obviously there was, there was this Prigozhin mutiny that obviously scared the elite in the Kremlin. Lots of talk of Putin being replaced, if that were to be the case. It might well be with somebody that's even more nationalistic and dangerous, Prigozhin being a, an example. Um, yes. And Batrashev, head of his National Security Council, is also a rabid hawk and uber-nationalist. So do you think that if it came to the situation where where Putin was threatened or humiliated by a defeat in uh, Ukraine, that he could resort to nuclear weapons? It was the very fear that General Milley had at the end of Trump's administration, where Trump is such a dangerous and stupid, uh, sick man, that he might start a war with Iran just to save himself from electoral defeat. So it's not as if we're immune from these kinds of situations. So what's your sense of whether or not that's also a danger? I think it's a possibility. And as you noted, Putin's circle does not appear to think very differently about this war. So were Putin to die tonight, I think we could still be having this conversation tomorrow about the threat of uh, nuclear first use here. And I, I think you know, defeat in this context can mean a number of things. But it does concern me that if one isolates the red lines that Putin keeps emphasizing about territorial sovereignty, about independence, about this abstract notion of the Russian state, um, a Ukrainian advance could could cross all those red lines. Um, a, a a so-called you know strategic defeat could cross those red lines. So I think those are all things to to be concerned about. So I think this is why diplomacy needs to uh, address all these issues. And finally, I think that you know again, it's most alarming to hear Russian experts reflect on this issue because um, you know they see really that the rhetoric moving into new territory. And finally, I would say, even if uh, Putin, you know, does not have a grand design to use a nuclear weapon as a last resort because of, you know, a setback in Ukraine, I think just that watching the day-to-day interactions over Ukraine, over the Black Sea, over the Baltic Sea, between, say, NATO jets and, and Russian jets, NATO ships, Russian ships, submarines, um, your, your listeners will recall that there have been dozens of accidents. Of course, these began during the Cold War, but I'm also concerned about the way in which these advanced weapon systems, the provision of F-16s to Ukraine, 
uh, could have other consequences that, that were not yet thought about, and that's just simply the you know the the kind of spiral of an accident, uh, a Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I think the possibility of something like that is you know, something that I think people on the ground are thinking about on a daily basis because this is, you know, literally you know pilots are are seeing each other eye to eye, and this happened of course over Syria. It has been happening for going on a decade now, but I think that the longer that goes on, the greater risk we we face of an accidental um, sure encounter which leads to something horrific right well of course they did have a deconfliction regime in syria but they don't right. have a deconfliction regime and over the black sea recently a uk british rc-135 electronics plane uh, 707 converted to full of electronics a russian fighter jet actually fired a missile at it mm. and mercifully the missile missed but had that plane been shot down god knows what would have happened Right. So it's definitely a dangerous situation. And yeah, I think thank you. That's another reason I think to to keep the conversation open and to keep you know to keep Moscow and Washington talking. Right. So Robert Cruz, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Cruz, who's a professor of history at Stanford University, where he teaches global history and politics, focusing on Afghanistan, Russia, Central Asia, South Asia, and Islam. He's the author of Afghan Modern: The History of a Global Nation, for Profit and Tsar. Islam and Empire in Russia and Central Asia. And he has an article at the Institute for New Global Politics, The Hydra of Hybrid War, Who Decides When Russia and the U.S. Are at War and What Comes Next. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by half